0: Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 41, Questions on Doctrine, Part 5. Now, last time we talked about, well, questions on doctrine, and specifically the evangelical reaction to Barnhouse and Martin's articles in Eternity Magazine. They lost a third of their subscribers before, well, it rallied back, and uh, perhaps because of Adventists, they got more subscribers than ever. But it was fierce, and the fallout as a result of that lasted a long time in terms of lost goodwill and those sort of things. Now we're gonna be talking about the Adventist reaction to questions and doctrine, and this is gonna take two parts. I'm sorry. Now, a little disclaimer, if you hear a little bit of background noise, it's because I'm at the NAD called convention, which is for pastors in Lexington, Kentucky. I've been posting a little bit about it, social media. I presented here, da, 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 da. but I'm in a little booth that the Adventist Learning Community has assembled. It's awesome. It's sound treated, but I'm still in a convention center and there's a bunch of exhibits and booths around me. I can look over here and see uh, Voice of Prophecy. I can see people sticking their faces in the window and things like that. So if, if the noise floor is a little higher than usual, I apologize. I'm going to try to get rid of that in post. But anyways, it's the only way that I could, uh, I could get this episode out on time. And I appreciate the ALC for making this possible. Okay, let's begin. As Walter Martin and Donald Gray Barnhouse were weathering the storm of controversy, which their articles in support of Adventists were earning them, Adventist authors also began quietly laying the groundwork for questions on doctrine. Arthur Maxwell published an editorial in Signs of the Times in October 1956 entitled, Adventists Vindicated. Now Maxwell was a close ally of Leroy Froome and he gushed over Barnhouse's courage, comparing the significance of his first article to a hydrogen bomb exploding in the evangelical world. To Maxwell, these evangelical articles were a vindication of Adventists after a century of slander by their fellow Christians. Maxwell called it, quote, one of the most epoch-making events in recent church history, end quote. Ruben figure the general conference president, was a bit more restrained when he wrote about the upcoming book. He sought to reassure the readers of the review that great care and great caution were exercised so that no Adventist beliefs were changed. Julius Nam, who wrote a dissertation on the events surrounding QOD, notes how odd it was that these epoch-making conversations with Martin and Barnhouse were barely discussed in Adventist magazines, at least not openly, okay? Nam writes, quote, The general membership of the Adventist church remained in the dark as to the details of the conferences and lacked a forum in which to discuss the unfolding events, end quote. If this really was this amazing situation where God had broken down prejudice and led some evangelical Christians to consider the Adventists as fellow Christians, then why not talk about this more? Why not trumpet this miracle in the Adventist press? Unless, of course, church leaders knew that many members wouldn't see this as a good thing, and, and so what ended up happening is that by letting the evangelicals break the news to Adventists. I mean, right, because a lot of Adventists, the first time they heard about something was when they when they heard about Eternity Magazines, you know. And so and so what happened was by letting the evangelicals break the news to Adventists, it surely gave the impression that the church had something to hide. Because here's Barnhouse in his opening article saying, yeah, the Adventist church has changed. They're not the same church they were in the 1800s. They're not even the same church they were 20 years ago. Their beliefs have changed, and now we consider them fellow Christians. So when Adventists read that, and that's the first thing, the first bit of news they have that their church was involved in these negotiations, and the evangelicals are saying, yeah, the Adventists changed their theology. What are church members supposed to think? What are they supposed to conclude? Now, Roy Allen Anderson's ministry magazine was an exception to this more or less quiet before the storm. No one did more than ministry to prepare Adventists for questions on doctrine. Because without without referencing by name the conferences with Martin and Barnhouse, Anderson was was publishing articles which laid a foundation for what would later appear in questions on doctrine. Anderson you know after months of just kind of he would he would just nibble at the issues that would appear. He would start sharing Ellen White quotes on a subject of atonement or on unity with other churches. you know just he would just write these articles about these subjects, knowing full well that these are going to be hot points later when questions and doctrine is, is published. He wouldn't he wouldn't mention anything by name until uh, December of 1956, where he explained a bit of the background of these evangelical Adventist conferences in announcing that a book was forthcoming. But ministry, it should be said, was aimed at the ministry, not the Adventist public. So all of these articles were meant to prepare pastors for what's coming. And if a lay person didn't read ministry, which, you know, why would they? They wouldn't see it coming. Meanwhile, Adventist leaders were grumbling at some of the things Martin and Barnhouse were writing in their eternity articles, particularly Barnhouse's assertion that Adventism has has changed their beliefs to become more evangelical. Raymond Cottrell, then working on the SDA Bible Commentary, wrote 16 pages in response to Barnhouse and Martin's articles, which he circulated exclusively to top GC officials. And Cottrell grumbled that Martin and Barnhouse still had these these misconceptions about Adventists and that Froome and company shouldn't have let them keep those misconceptions. Cottrell warned that, quote, almost certainly there will also arise a storm of opposition when our ministry and laity discover the real meaning of the actual terms on which we have achieved a rapprochement with Martin and the other Evangelicals," end quote. Now, it's unlikely that Froom and Figueroa needed to be told that they were playing a risky game, but at this point, it's too late to have second thoughts. Now, the General Conference leadership was far from united themselves, they, but they did present a united front in public. Perhaps the gnawing anxiety in Figure and Cuttrell and Hepenstahl and others is is an important reason why QOD wasn't talked about more in the Adventist press. On the one hand, they wanted to show confidence in QOD. They wanted to celebrate the 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 unity or the acceptance that the evangelical world had offered Adventism. You know, they didn't want that just to disappear, but at the same time they were afraid that that some of the some of the defects in the book or or perhaps they were just afraid that the members who, who were to read it would think that the church had sold them down the river. And so they were stuck, I think, between these two feelings, one of approval and one of, you know, we also disagree with Barnhouse and Martin in the way that they're characterizing things. You know, we didn't change our theology, but if we, really, if we, if we, if we bring them back to the table and say, you know what, we didn't change at all, that's going to throw this whole thing, <laughs> you know, onto the bus. You know, what's to stop Martin from saying, you know what, we're we're so tired of you guys. You, you say you've changed. You say you don't believe these things anymore. Uh, but then you're going off and saying that your theology hasn't changed. Like, where are you guys as Adventists? Like, what's going on with you guys? And I, I think there's this fear of like, we want to be accepted by them, but we also don't want to compromise our own theology at the same time. And this tension created this situation where very few articles explicitly Talk about QOD, you know, this forthcoming book, or the or the evangelical Adventist conferences. They they very seldom talk about, it. but when they do, they're really enthusiastic about it. That this is such a great thing, and it creates this bizarre world <laughs> where only of these things are only mentioned a few times, but they're mentioned as if they're some of the greatest things that the Adventist Church has ever been a part of, and 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 doesn't explain why we don't talk about it more. Anyways, with the QOD manuscript taking shape. Copies were sent to some 250 pastors, presidents, teachers, editors, and administrators for feedback. This was the basis for the claim that QOD was representative of Adventist thought, right? Because we've showed it to these 250 leading people in the church, and they didn't have a problem with it. They thought it was great, so therefore it represents, really, because if these leaders agree with it, then presumably the people that they lead would also agree with it. So this was the basis for them saying that QOD was representative of Adventist thought. But in reality, Julius Nam tells us that only a few church leaders bothered the reply. No response came from outside North America. No local or union president responded. And many of the responses they did get were just superficial, like one page, hey, you know, we read it, you know, good work, keep up the good work, you know, kind of stuff. And, and, and it's, that's very troubling, right? Because Nam notes... All of the significant responses to, you know, the people who took the time to really critique this pre-production version of this manuscript of q and all of the significant responses came from people who worked within a block of the General Conference building. People at the Review, people at the Seminary, people within the General Conference itself. Raymond Cottrell generally, generally appreciated the book, but he again warned that he didn't think it was truly representative of Adventist thought because he's, you know, I can think of several good ministers that I know of who wouldn't agree with some of the things that are in this book. So how can we say this is representative of Adventist thought? His colleague Francis Nichol at the Review agreed. So did Ted Hepenstall. But Froome, Anderson, and Reed had already reached an understanding with Walter Martin, right? The articles in Eternity had already been published. What are you going to do now? Go back to the table with Martin and say, oops, I guess we didn't represent Adventism as much as we thought we did, right? Cuttrell had warned, as if it needed to be said, that if Martin sensed betrayal or equivocation at this point, he would probably spend the rest of his life waging an unholy war of unrelenting fury against the Adventists you really want to risk that? Tension existed among GC leaders to the point that even Figure worried that Froome, Anderson, and Reed were too invested in this, they're too close to it, and they might have lost all sense of perspective. Now, Anderson, at least, knew how Figure and others were feeling. He tried to reassure his boss that he wasn't trying to compromise Adventist truth, and in a desperate statement, Anderson wrote Figure's and 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 said, quote, brother figure, this is my life. I have nothing else to live for, end quote. So Froome, Anderson, and Reed, were all in. We've got to go forward. We can't go back now. We have nothing else to live for, Anderson says. In the fall of 1956, M.L. Andreasen picked up his own copy of Eternity, read, Barnhouse's first article about accepting Adventists as Christians, right? That Adventists had changed. And he took Barnhouse's comments at face value. And Andreasen was horrified. Now, in case you don't remember much about ML Andreasen from that bonus episode that we did in September 2021, it was called Fall of the Seminary. Andreasen was the guy throughout the 1930s and 40s. He had been a college president, conference president, pastor, scholar, and author, all sorts of things. And his specialty was on the sanctuary. He had written books on the sanctuary, he lectured on the sanctuary. Now, he had been born in Denmark in 1876. And, and hear me out, I think he needs a nickname. I, I know we all know him as M.L. Andreasen or MLA, but I'm, I'm thinking he needs a nickname. I'm thinking the Great Dane. Yeah. I don't care how you feel about Andreasen in this story. The Great Dane is a sweet nickname for him. And so I hereby pledge the remainder of my life to making this nickname stick. By the time we get to the 1950s, however, Andreasen is pushing 80, and he's out of the spotlight. He was forcibly retired at the general conference session about six years prior. And while he did work on the SDA Bible commentary, he wasn't counted among the 250 Adventist leaders and scholars who received a pre-production copy of QOD, even though QOD dealt with areas of Andreasen's specialty, like the Atonement and Sanctuary. What's more, Andreasen had written the Sabbath School Guide for the first two quarters of 1957, only to be told that the church didn't need them anymore, and, um, you know, thanks for your time. Andreasen's like, yeah, my time. I had to pay somebody to type all this up. I had to put all this research in it. How about you guys reimburse me $3,000? And we get the impression, I don't know 100% for sure, that he did get his money for all of that work that he put into it, but, you know, he might have burned a few bridges with the church by insisting upon it. And so he's he's starting to feel a little bit alienated from the church that he had served his entire life. That, you know, you're excluding me from this QOD thing. You should have brought me in. You know, I'm an expert in this field. You're 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 burning me in the Sabbath school quarterly. You know, just overall, it's that the things are kind of adding up for him, where he's feeling increasingly alienated from the church. And 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 despite all this, he might have just kept his own feelings about Barnhouse's article to himself. But he read an article by Leroy Froom that just just shoved him over the edge. It appeared in Ministry, of course, in February 1957, and it was about the high priestly ministry of Jesus and the atonement. Now, Frum wrote that Christ's death was, quote, a complete, perfect, and final atonement for man's sin, end quote. That may sound reasonable to you, but this shook Andreasen because in his mind, this was more evangelical than it was Adventist. Because in the sanctuary scheme, right, that's his field, the sacrifice... Happened on the altar of burnt offering, the sacrifice you know that Jesus represents, and the burnt off in the altar of burnt offering was in the outer courtyard. That wasn't the end of making atonement. That wasn't the, the the final step. In fact, that was like the first step. Adventists believed that Jesus entered the heavenly sanctuary after his ascension to do his priestly ministry there. Atonement wasn't made until the cleansing of the sanctuary which adventists had taught only began began in 1844 so how could Froome be saying that the cross represented a final atonement for our sins i mean wasn't this a complete sellout to the evangelicals who didn't have a sanctuary message who didn't have any understanding of the anti-typical day of atonement or any of these other things that adventists taught they just focused on the cross as as the end all of our atonement as human beings. Whereas Avinas had said, No, 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 that's the altar out in the courtyard, but the priest has to take the blood into the sanctuary, right? And then once a year he goes into the most holy place, and this is the cleansing of the sanctuary that happens. There's a whole process here. It isn't just the death of the animal, it's not just the death of the sacrifice. There's a whole process here, right? So so Andreasen sees this as this is a complete sellout to the evangelicals is no longer an Adventist doctrine. So, what does Andreasen do? He does what every good Adventist would do, is he writes a five-page letter called The Atonement, where he took issue with what he saw as Froome minimizing 1844 in order to appeal to the evangelicals. What concerns me, Andreasen wrote about Froome's article, quote, are not the charges he makes, nor the numerous unfortunate expressions, nor even the superior attitude he exhibits, but the appalling theology that he sets forth as avenus doctrine, end quote. Andreason calls Froome's ideas shallow and confused and accused him of setting up a creed for the church. Too much is at stake, he said, quote, to some it looks like the Omega so long foretold, end quote. Andreason found the whole idea of the Avenus evangelical conferences galling. Imagine, he wrote in another paper, quote, Seventh-day Adventists going to a Methodist institution, suggesting certain changes in their books. Huh, they'd be promptly shown the door, and rightly so, end quote. Turning his attention back to Froome and company, he said, quote, Creed and doctrine are not decided by a few men. Election to an office does not make a man a theologian or qualify him to pass on such delicate subjects as the nature of Christ while in the flesh. Hands off, end quote. Now this atonement letter was the first of nine, which Andreasen would write. His central concerns were over the nature of Christ and the atonement, but his overarching concern was that his church was selling out its own doctrine for the sake of unity with the evangelicals. Figure and others basically urged Andreasen to drop the matter. Andreasen offered to go to headquarters and talk through his concerns. His only condition was that he wanted an audio copy of the meeting. Now, this was not an unusual request in that day. It, it's kind of a, you know, we're going to leave here. We're having a, a a bit of a disagreement in this meeting, and so I want a copy. You guys can have a copy of what's said here. That way, when we go our separate ways and we tell people what happened, you know, the other side can say, hey, you're not record- reporting this right. You know, I have my own audio copy. This is what's said, and I can prove it if you want to come over and listen to it. You know what I mean? It was just kind of a way of verifying that both sides would truthfully report what was said and uh, that the record could be created. The problem, of course, from the church's perspective is if we give somebody a copy of this, what are they gonna do with it? Can they edit it selectively to make church leaders say whatever they want? Um, just the idea that one of these tapes would be out in the wild was was usually a non-starter for the church. They don't like doing that. And all of this left Andreasen feeling like he had really fallen from grace for reasons he couldn't understand. I mean, They won't give me an audio recording of our meeting Yet they let me run a college. They let me run a seminary. They let me teach at the at the at the main seminary there in in Maryland. And and now, you know, they let me publish books. Those are great books. They let me preach at camp meetings. They let me do all of these things, but I can't have a tape from our meeting. Like what did I do to deserve this lack of trust that the brethren have for me? And Andreas seemed to Seems to blame Froome personally. The two had known each other forever, and they'd locked horns in the past from time to time. They just didn't quite fully get along. And Andreasen warned Figure that Froome wasn't qualified to write questions on doctrine, and that if it is published, then quote, there will be repercussions to the ends of the earth that the foundations are being removed, end quote. Now, Froome found out what Andreasen had been writing to Figure, and he was furious. Froome told the Great Dane that, you know what? There are other theologians in the world besides you, and they agree with me. And so the next time you want to talk about me, write to me, not the general conference president. Don't go over my head. If you got a problem with me, come to me. That's basically what Froome was saying, although it's probably a lot better if you read it with some kind of like New York accent. Anyways, naturally, Andreasen matched Froom's tone in his reply, and he defended himself by saying he only wrote to the general conference president because he's the leader of the church you're destroying, buddy. No, Andreasen wasn't, wasn't the only one who had issues with Froome's article. A.V. Olson, who was the White Estate Board Chair, felt that the article shouldn't have been published. Froome's article, nah. Figueroa would later agree, you know, just it wasn't worth the trouble. Now, it's worth pausing at this point to ask ourselves, what might have happened to QOD if Andreasen had been able to find out that he wasn't the only one who felt this way in the general conference, that even Figueroa had his own reservations, that others had their own reservations like like Nicol and Hepenstall. And, 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 and maybe maybe Andreasen could have used his clout to build a coalition against QOD. I mean, clearly there were some high church leaders who were nervous about all this, Adventist evangelical stuff and and how it might truly lead to a changing of Adventist belief. And yet, no coalition formed. Instead, Andreasen kept up the attacks on Froome, Anderson, and Reed, and the brethren at the general conference closed ranks. Andreasen called Froome's work dastardly, and found out that Anderson and Reed were meeting with the White Estate to discuss adding some notes to Ellen White's comments on the atonement, you know, in her other published writings, to emphasize that this wor- that this work was was uh, was finished at the cross. Now, this was proof to to Andreasen that these three men wanted to change Ellen White's writings to fit their evangelical theology. Andreason wrote more letters to figure, this time urging him to fire Anderson and Reed for their high crimes of, and I quote, conspiracy against God and his people. A couple of weeks later, Andreasen picked up his pen again to call it the greatest apostasy Adventists had ever had to deal with. Well, if you're wondering why Andreasen had been unable to form a coalition against QOD, I would suggest that his high rhetoric of, you know, basically accusing people of treason is the reason why. And as we've noted, Figueroa had his own problems with parts of QOD, but Figure would defend Froome all day, every day, from the charge of committing, say, high treason. I mean, I don't even know what a conspiracy against God <laughs> looks like, you know, what? What are you going to charge them for uh, out of the church manual there? Anyways, Andreasen probably had no idea that there were uh, all of these important leaders who sympathized with him. Sure, certainly some reached out to him and let him know, but but he probably didn't realize that it could have included Nichol and Olson and others there uh, in the who are so high up at the GC. Andreasen probably had no idea that there were so many important leaders who sympathized with him. And he beat that sympathy out of them with his forceful, over-the-top letters. He saw enemies in the church, and so, like so many other people, because he saw enemies in the church, he created enemies in the church. Andreasen's letters kept arriving at headquarters. And keep in mind, friends, he had never seen the book manuscript for QOD. He had Froome's article from February. He had some White Estate Board minutes from May. And, of course, he had the stuff Barnhouse and Martin had written. That's what he had. And with this, he was charging Froome, Anderson, and Reed with conspiracy to destroy Adventism. It's the greatest crisis that Adventism had ever faced. Desperate, Andreasen threatened to take his concerns to a wider group of people, the General Conference Executive Committee, unless Figure agreed to put his concerns on the agenda at, at, at Autumn Council, an annual council. If that didn't work... Andreasen said he would take it to the next general conference session. And if you want to know how to get a general conference president to pay attention to you and and make a decision, that's probably a good way to do it, right? Threaten to take it to the floor of a general conference session. That got Figueroa's attention, and Figueroa basically told Andreasen that we're done here, and if anyone is going to harm the church, it's you if you keep this up. Andreasen wrote back, Quote, I consider this the greatest apostasy that has ever come to this denomination and foretold by Sister White, and you would have kept it undercover? May God save his people. In the providence of God, the information came to me, End quote. To Andreasen, Figuer had made his stand on the wrong side, and he was done trying to persuade him. Now, Andreasen also wrote to the secretary of the general conference, W.R. Beach, quote, dear brother, I write to ascertain the correct denominational procedure in preferring charges against a high official of the denomination and certain of his associates involving impeachment, usurpation of powers not delegated to them or inherent in their respective offices, heresy, corruption of doctrine vital to denominational existence, malfeasance, end quote. The great Dane wanted to impeach Figure to remove him, and presumably he had in mind, Froome, Anderson, and Reed from office. It was unprecedented and extremely unlikely to ever happen. But by asking the General Conference secretary, Andreasen was sure that it would send a message to his boss, to Figure. Now, questions on doctrine appeared in November. 1957, with all of this stuff happening before, if one felt that this was all a big conspiracy to change Adventism by its leaders, well, let's just say the publication plan did nothing to contradict that feeling. From the start, Adventists were told that this was a hugely important book that lots of people wanted, it's the best thing that we've ever produced, you know, that kind of stuff. It was placed on the pastor's reading list. It was sent to Christian organizations around the world to be placed in their libraries. Roy Allen Anderson and two others on a special committee for distribution identified who should receive copies. Here's a few off that list. Quote, overseas theological and religious leaders, editors of religious journals in North America, leaders of major denominations, certain outstanding pastors, end quote. Well, to be a little bit more specific, 37 copies were sent to Methodist bishops. 29 copies were sent to various writers. 75 copies were sent to seminary professors. The World Council of Churches got copies. The National Council of Churches got copies. It was like Oprah. You get a book, and you get a book, and you get a book, and you get a book. They were authorized to send out 500 copies, and they were begging the General Conference to be able to send out more. And it wasn't enough, right? Vroom picked 50 Christian denominations and decided that the leader of each of them would get a book. Then the deans of 50 seminaries would get a book. Then the editors of 50 religious journals would get a book. Then some secular editors of papers would get a book. On top of that, if the leaders of these groups knew of two or three people in their denomination who wanted a copy of the book, Froome would be happy to send them one as well. Froome reassured them that this book was, quote, prepared by a team of our most experienced writers, scholars, theologians, and editors, and authorized by a representative committee of our denominational leaders, end quote our most experienced theologians? Well, I can think of one very experienced theologian who wasn't on that list. Roy Allen Anderson published his own glowing appraisal in Ministry in the March of 1958, announcing that the book had been sent out to 250 people for feedback and that no one had suggested any serious changes. That wasn't quite true, depending on how you looked at it. Anderson wasn't responding to Andreasen, of course, because he answered several of Andreasen's criticisms all without naming the Great Dane. Now, this was a PR push to build confidence in QOD. Ken Wood, when he became uh, editor of the Review much later, he observed that Anderson's article, quote, gave a clear signal that anyone who had views other than those set forth in questions on doctrine were in the minority, were incapable of understanding the clear, powerful expositions of truth set forth in the book, or did not believe in the spirit of prophecy, end quote. It was a it was a positioning article, right? Like this is the side we're on. If you're not with us, you know, you're 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 outside of the camp, so to speak. Right. So and this is you know, he's trying to he's trying to preempt Andreasen's criticism. So when Andreasen comes out in public about his criticism someday, we'll all know where he stands in relation to the church. Andreessen clearly wasn't alone because the church was constantly talking about how great QOD was, how many copies have been sold so far, how it's, how it's much cheaper now than we anticipated because so many copies have been sold so far, and so on. Praise was the church's response to criticism, even if that criticism wasn't public yet. Anderson explained how Adventists had been growing as they learned new truths in his April issue of ministry, and he called for unity, like unity there wasn't any open controversy yet, but he knew one was coming. In June, Harry Lowe, another church official in the Sabbath school department, reviewed QOD for ministry and again quietly answered objections that he anticipated. He actually quoted Martin Dehan, which we talked about before, that, that you know this old critic of Adventism, who claimed that he had been told constantly that QOD was supposed to show how Adventism was changing, but that when he read QOD, he discovered that Adventists hadn't changed at all. So Lowe pointed to that and said, see, we haven't changed our beliefs. What Barnhouse might have thought about that statement? <laughs> I don't know. So Lowe ended by uh, giving off a sales pitch of people to go buy a QOD. Now, Andreessen cut off from being able to share his frustrations with Figure and seeing all of these articles appear month after month after month, which which were aimed at him, you know, quietly. They didn't mention him by name. He just fumed. He began reworking his letters his nine atonement letters to Figure and others, and, and, and began calling them letters to the church. Like-minded Adventists, aware by now of Andreas stand, Stan, joined him. And the Adventist church began to cleave over this issue. Froome would go on arguing that QOD was changing evangelical minds about Adventists. Andreasen would go on arguing that evangelical minds had changed QOD. Andreasen saw himself as the victim, of course. So the word has gone out, he wrote. Quote, shoot the watchdog, and it is being done. May God pity our leaders. They are fulfilling prophecy. I pray for them. I'm not bitter. I am not vindictive. I am enjoying a sound Christian experience, and I pray for my beloved church. My head is bloody but unbowed. Paul went down to defeat, but he had the consolation that a crown awaited him. As for me, here I stand. I can do no other. God helping me. The fight is not finished. It has just begun. End quote. The great Dane, the new Martin Luther, making his stand before this new diet of worms, he would receive no audience with figure where he can make his case like Luther did. He would make it by appealing to the members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He would appeal to the court of public opinion. And everyone, both Andreasen and church leaders, would live to regret the outcome. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is History Project.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again at Avenus History Project.org. And we're gonna keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear.